everybody. I am Vero. I am Lina. Welcome to our coverage of the book called Stardust. <laughs> We've talked about the movie a while back. At length. Did we talk about it enough, though? However, no. we are coming back now with talking about the book. And there is quite a lot of differences. So this may get surprise! long. Yeah, this uh, surprise, there's a lot of differences and surprise, this may be long. We don't know yet. As of this moment in time, we are fresh and young and hopeful. Uh, Let's see ish. how it ends. <laughs> So, Vero, anything in general you want to say before we get started? Did you like it? <laughs> yeah, let it be said to begin with. I really enjoyed the book. There is indeed a lot of differences. Okay. But I actually can't think of anything that would rub me the wrong way enough for me to dislike the book. I really enjoyed it. For me, this is one of the very few examples where both the original book and the new movie are great within themselves. And I enjoy the very obvious shared parts, but I also really enjoy how both things are very different. Mm. And usually I'm uh, very much like, no, this was very different in the original. You need to do it differently. But here I can enjoy it. So I kind of understand that it's very difficult to adapt a book into a movie because movies are short and there is never enough time to do everything page by page. But, but they still made some very, very clear choices. They, they certainly did. But I have to say, as I was going through the book, absolute majority of the time when I was reading it and when I was noticing the differences, I was like, oh, I see what they've done there. It doesn't bother me. Do really? I miss the pirates? Fuck yeah. <laughs> do I think it would be nice to have a little bit more background in the movie on Dunstan because uh, we'll get into that very momentarily very, very soon yeah uh, it, it, that would be great but it works the way it is it is in the movie it actually just works and they could do it differently they could do it more in detail but there is no way in telling what that would have done with the rest of the story yeah exactly so uh, you know walking the path that they chosen I appreciated it also the book goes on for a much longer time everything is much like sped up basically in the book we only have like a week and a half of total narration time basically mm -hmm. and to give us that as a believable timeline a few things had to be changed and mostly the book does not have one specific big bad and the movie needs a proper antagonist mm -hmm. or maybe even two but the way they changed the three witches to be more relevant and bigger bigger threats anyway yeah yeah and also like to have her die to have all of them die in the movie because in the book they don't yeah so. not yet anyway even though yeah the tree has been no the acorn hasn't been lost yet that uh, from which will grow the tree from which the wood of the crate of the child that will uh, kill her shall be built. Right when she says that, she fucks off and then an, um, the squirrel finds the squirrel the... finds the acorn and drops it and is confused and then runs off. And no, then... she buries it. Yeah, like, and yeah, then forgets the... about it. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very well done. So the sequel that never happened. That could have happened. Yeah, but it never happened. We so far. could have well, had I mean, this. That could be a great question for Neil Gaiman himself if we ever get to meet him, if he ever plans on writing that story. I think it would be fun. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to put that on the question list. Yay! Before we get into the chapter one, uh, my edition of the book includes a song slash poem at the beginning. There is two options to how this can go. I can read the whole thing and then we can debate it or I can just refer it and add it. To, uh, it is in my notes. So I will leave it up to you. Do you want to hear I... it? I oh let me see let me see I have a poem in the beginning I have a quote by Neil and I have the song the song so yes let me yeah let, me, let John me give Don. you exactly let me give you the quote and then let me give you the 
excerpt that is in there because I'm pretty sure that it's not from the book. And then you can do the song. Okay. Okay. So very, very, the very, literally the very first page in my book says, I wanted to write a story that would feel to the reader like something he or she had always known. Well done. So that was Neil. That's what Neil said. And then we have on the second page, he imagined he could see the very faces of the stars pale they were and smiling gently as if they had spent so much time above the world watching the scrambling and the joy and the pain of the people below them that they could not help being amused every time another little human believed itself the center of its world as each of us does. And then we have a lot of reviews of Neil for several pages. And then the book actually starts. <laughs> well, my book starts with three pages that are called Praise for Stardust. Yes, yes. And there is uh, many short little reviews and, and quotes from different presses and posts and times. Mine is called With Stories Come Possibilities. Ah, that sounds very Stardust-like. Also very Neil Gaiman-like. There is a quote by Stephen King. Gaiman is, simply put, a treasure house of story and we are lucky to have him in any medium. I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you, Stephen King. I have Philip Pullman, who I adore, who wrote the uh, historic materials. And he said, much too clever to be caught in the net of a single interpretation. Amazing. Love that. And then I also have the list of other books that he has written. We have our title page. Ooh, we have some information. We have a dedication. Yes, I have the dedication. And then I have song. Then share the song with us. John Donne. 1572 to 1631. Go and catch a falling star. Get with child a mandrake root. Tell me where all past years are. Or who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear mermaids singing. Or to keep off envy's stinging. And find what wine services to advance an honest mind. If thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, write ten thousand days and nights till age snow white hairs on thee. Though when thou returnst wilt tell me all strange wonders that befell thee, and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. If thou finds one, let me know, such a pilgrimage were sweet, yet do not, I would not go, though at next door we might meet, though she were true when you met her, at last till you write your letter, yet she will be. False ear, I come to two or three. And as per usual, I don't understand it. <laughs> I would find a lot of themes in this that are connected to the story of Stardust, I feel like. We have, oh. obviously, Go Catch a Falling Star. Yes. Even though he goes not to catch it, but to find it and Just then mentioning it. Get With Child, a mandrake root. Oh, oh, yeah, true. That feels like a magical way of getting a child. And if it is mentioning what Una did or if it is kind of just referring to the magic that is needed to conceive a child, essentially especially back in the 16th century. So I did not research this poem, but mm. now that you made sure that we talk about it, did you know that John Donne is often considered the greatest love poet in the English language? I did not know that. And he is part of the literary movement of metaphysical poetry. I love that for him. <laughs> yes. If you like metaphysical poetry and stardust, goes very well hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there is a there is a lot of references to things that I find interesting. When did Copernic live? It feels like around the same time, right? It oh seems God, like uh, human beings around that time were very much focused on the stars and uh, and the things over the horizon, essentially. So. It makes sense to me because then creating a story around it and making it fairy tale like this is what Stardust is about, essentially, isn't it? Oh, we're going to talk about what Stardust is about. <laughs> Don's style is characterized by abrupt openings and various paradoxes, ironies, and dislocations. <laughs> I really hope dislocations is meant as in like changing locations and not dislocating someone's shoulders. No, no, I'm pretty sure. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that I might know by him. It, but... it feels a little bit like this can be a little cynical as well because he is talking about, well, if you find a woman... 
if you travel 10,000 days and nights, you might be able to find a woman that is, you know, worthy of love. <laughs> and if you make this pilgrimage, I really hope it's going to work out for you. Good luck, buddy. It kind of, that's that's what it's giving me <laughs> the end, the second half. I mean, apparently most of his subjects related to love, sexuality, religion and death. Yeah, no surprise there. Again. I'm trying to figure out what his, what his most famous poem is but sadly it does not oh nearly none of his poetry was published during his lifetime Aww, oh the Van Gogh of poetry oh basically hmm. unappreciated okay, till the end that's the R that is a T Veronica oh. death be not proud a sonnet by John Donne okay in the opening octave the poet debunks the belief that death is a victor explaining that it cannot kill him it can merely rest his weary body and free his soul to heaven. So basically he lay his weary head to, to rest. rest. Yeah. And will cry no more. Why is there always a supernatural reference? We are getting into chapter one and with Stardust every chapter has a really nice subtitle and chapter one gets in which we learn of the village of Wall and of the curious thing that occurs there every nine years. And if you want to know why we spent half an hour talking about something and now are re-recording this bit you need to be a patron of the Believer level and listen to the bonus material. A.K.A. if you are interested in maths or in the inability to math <laughs> or in doubting your favorite authors. So we get started with this. And for me, the most important first glaring difference is that this story is about a heart's desire. It's not about a boy becoming a man. Not yet anyway. No, but the focus is heart's your design. heart's desire. Yes. I'm going to have issues with that in a few moments. But I like this more than the, the boy needs to be a man, you know, because that is just a byproduct. Yeah, no, that's very well said. I like the fact that we get an actual setting for the story, which yes. is more uh, specific and fact-specific than uh, what we have in the book. Uh, it, and so much more detailed. Uh, we get loads of details. We know that this is happening during the Victorian era. Oh, yes. Did you look up when those events that he uses to date it happen? Because he talks about Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist serialization, Mr. Draper's first photograph of the moon, and Mr. Morse's announcement of Morse code. I did not look up the dates. I did. So, do you want to have them? Please. So, the Charles Dickens Oliver Twist serialization happened from 1837 to 1839. The first photograph of the moon by Mr. Draper was taken on March 26, 1840. And the invention of the Morse code, I could not find an announcement date, was 1836. So... 1836 being the lowest date and March 26, 1840, the highest date. And in between those, Oliver Twist came out. Of course. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to be me. Now, we have the setting, the time setting, and we have a lot of details about Wall. Oh, yes. We uh, get to meet all the different characters. We get background on Dunstan, which is something that I immensely enjoyed because he is no longer just a random kid that decides to break the rules and cross the wall for whatever reason that we don't really understand. He is somebody who is acting with motivations and his own agendas. And it's actually surprising that he does go over in the end because in the beginning when we meet him he is part of the original Wallborn because we learn much about the judgmental nature of the original Wallborn and the move to wall people who get accepted but are always quite different. I love the vibe we get of wall but Dunstan is an original waller mm -hmm. he has always like his family has always been there so he actively resents the visitors he like he judges them so him actually going to the market is surprising because he has other things on his mind yeah he is also a very practical human being he is very yes. I am courting Daisy because it is what is proper and I only yeah. do what is proper and not a step more. And this is something that he's gonna, this is a reasoning why he ends up actually marrying her as well, which I actually think is a very good step 
on his part because yes. he does make her happy and she does make him happy as well. I think that they are work as a couple and he would have never been happy on his own. And it would have been, as we saw in the movie, immensely difficult to raise a boy on his own. And we have talked about this when we were covering the movie how yeah. unusual that is to be a single father with no mother inside, not even a widow or nothing, yeah. just being a single father. And it makes sense that because he was courting her before that he continues his courtship because in between when we have the, oh, he gets the snowdrop and he's like smitten, he does kiss her on the cheek, which gasp. It's so adorable. She is so into him, so cute. I also found it very interesting that Dunstan is one of the men on guard duty for the hole in the wall. And obviously the wall in the book is a proper wall. Yep. Not like in the movie where it's like, well, just jump over the fucking wall somewhere else. No. I am convinced that this is in the movie part. It's like a magical thing keeping people away. Of course. Away. Of course. But here also, once again, they do let people through once in a while. They don't stop everyone. And it makes so much sense to me. It makes it better. This is I, I made actually a list of what I am. Where does that start? Oh, Jesus. Would you I, like better on each site? I made a list of things that I liked about the book. And list. I say list, but I didn't actually mark it as a list. <laughs> I, just I have said, to say, I prefer book Dunstan. Yeah. I just have a very big issue with the framing of Dunstan. Because in this chapter and in the last one, we have the whole you will get your heart's desire and your firstborn for generations will also get this gift for as long as the person who bestowed this gift upon him lives. But Dunstan does not get his heart's desire. Doesn't he? No. He has a night with Una. Uh-huh. I keep calling her Una even though we learn her name at the very, very end. Yeah, um, no, it's easy. He has his night with Una and then he has a son. But in the end, he's left with neither. Because Tristran never returns proper home and Una does not return to Dunstan because Dunstan has a wife and a daughter. Yeah. And if Daisy and Luisa are his heart's desire, then Una definitely wasn't it. So whatever his actual heart's desire is, he does not get to keep it. That is true. I don't think he, you need to keep your heart's desire in order to get it. I think in my, in my view, his heart's desire was an adventure and a night of passion, which is what he's gotten with Una. And then he was content enough to go back and live the life that he's lived before without ever feeling... Content? I mean, he was eventually. I think he was more or less okay with everything, but was he... Like, I think he was content, but was he happy? That is a debate that we could have, but we will never solve. And so I do wonder because especially when you compare Tristan finding his heart's desire and Dunstan supposedly having his heart's desire. Like, they do not compare well because Tristan gets a lifetime of happiness. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Dunstan doesn't necessarily not get lifetime of happiness. I think he gets a lifetime of contentment, but... Because, no, if you look at it, it would be clearly sad and terrible if he didn't have Daisy and... What's her name? L Lindsay? Luisa. Luisa, sorry. If he didn't have Daisy and Luisa, he would be just alone. And yes, in the movie, they solve it with him coming to Stormhold and, and being, being with Una. With Una. Yeah. But I I don't know if I mentioned that properly when you're covering the movie. They didn't know each other? What the fuck? Yeah, but they are meant to be in quotation marks like in the movie yeah maybe that's so, why they decided to scrub that whole wife and other child I'm pretty sure angle. yeah because it actually tracks more with the heart's desire thing for me but most of his life he was alone with his son obviously no, but you like... had his son and in the movie in the end he has his true love and his son yeah so in the end movie Dunstan gets to have a more classic happy ending mm. than book Dunstan book Dunstan gets a realistic happy ending but yeah. not a fairy tale happy ending and this is a fairy tale this is a fairy tale for people who live in the fairy no I think no I mean the entire book Stardust is a fairy tale shush is it? it is yes okay. in my opinion Stardust is a fairy tale a classic fairy tale no not meant for children but for grown ups that is that is I suppose fairy enough 
<laughs> fairy in Ava. <laughs> nice. That, that was a good one. Speaking of fairies, Dunstan <laughs> believes in fairies. He is he aware does, of he fairy does. and he believes in all the implications. Because when he rents his cottage and he gets the whole like, uh, oh, I want a miracle. And then he gets granted the you will find your heart's desire. He gets paid and he checks for fairy gold by uh, poking the gold coin with an iron nail. And so for our listeners who are not as obsessed as... I think both of us are with fairy tales and the she and fairyland. Iron is the bane of fairies. And most of the lower fairy enchantments are supposedly undone with iron. Mm -hmm. So he is aware of that. I feel like people in Wall begrudgingly know and accept that world, even though... But they don't like it. <laughs> but they don't like it and pretend they, it doesn't exist for nine years at a time. Yeah, yeah. Except for when they are standing on watch. But they happily take the money of them. Obviously, it's money. Capitalism! Even in your fairy tale. <laughs> uh, I really enjoy that we have the hairy man appearance in the first chapter. The tall hairy man? No, not the tall hairy man. The tiny hairy man. The ti- I was completely... The tall man with... A, with uh, the, the man with a tall hat is the one who gives him the miracle. Yeah. And then when uh, Dunson goes to sleep into... Hey, I wrote it down somewhere. Right! That's where Into I... the cow, cow barn. I could not remember where we had met the small hairy man. The tall man with the tall hat and the tiny and a tiny man that is very hairy. Yes, because I was like, why? 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 Yes, I completely forgot about that. Thank yes. you. And it's something, I read this and I was like, I'm sure this is going to come back. This is so... Yeah, I completely ignored ...explicitly it. inserted into the story with no come yeah. out whatsoever that I was like, it need, this is going to come back. And it did. Chekhov's hairball. <laughs> Chekhov's hairball. <laughs> Oh, speaking of hairballs, did you notice that Una has cat ears? Yes, yeah. I'm going to say it now so I don't keep ranting. I dislike book Una very much. There is a lot that we can talk about. By the end of the book coverage, we're going to have a lot more things to talk about. Yeah, but I'm just going to go on record here. Movie Una, I like a lot more than book Una. I have a lot of issues with book Una. Movie Una is likable. Yes, I'm not going to say that that uh, movie Una is better. She is more fairy godmother. I feel like book Una is more her brother's sister. Yes. Than movie Una. Movie yes. Una is not a child of Stormhold. Mm-hmm. Book Una very much is a child of Stormhold. Yes. And I like that in the concept of the story. But uh, we'll get to that when we get to that at the very end of this. But yes, I do have opinions. And I didn't actually mind her as much in the first chapter. At the end, I can't with her. In the beginning, it's okay. Even though yeah. it's very obvious that she deliberately has sex with Dunstan to get pregnant. I mean, obviously, yes. But there is a whole... Wait, I'm going to go back to, uh, down to my list because we are flying all over the place. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. So basically, we know that she's Una. I appreciate in the first chapter that Una knows exactly what she wants and she is going to go out there and she will get it. Yeah. That is a quality that movie Una kind of had, but it was more it happens to work out for me than I want this to happen. It was more opportunistic than I make my own opportunities. Also, book Una has much more freedom. Yes. Within her captivity than movie Una. And also, of course, the whole when will the enchantment end is very different. It is also something that only when I was going through the book again to make my notes, I noticed that she has mentioned the uh, conditions of her release. When the moon loses her daughter and two Mondays meet in a week. I took forever to understand that. And when I finally clicked in my brain, I was like, oh my God, I'm fucking stupid. Yeah. So yeah, that was the two Mondays. I, I was like, what? Okay. Yeah. The two Mondays were great. And the fact that you, if you read this carefully enough, you can clock the fact that we already have a character called Monday in play. Yeah, we have a Mr. Monday. Yes. Like you could see this coming. But even yeah. when the engagement is announced, I did not see it yeah. coming. Not even when she says it the second time, I didn't clock it. Only when Victoria actually talks to Yvain and tells her that there 
they're going to be two Mondays or like they're going to come together as two Mondays or something like that. I was like, hold on a minute. What is going on here? I read over that. I was like, wait, what? Oh, oh, no. So yeah, um, I did not see it coming. We do get this specific phrase already in chapter one. Yes. Just so Neil Gaiman can be like, I fucking told you so. This is on you. And yes, you are correct, Mr. Gaiman. This is absolutely on us for not noticing that immediately. We also get more information how she even became a slave. And so it's just like, as per usual, I feel this is something that is going to come up once and again and again and again. The book has more depth, has more background for every single character. Because, duh, we have quite a bit more space to talk about this. Isn't it interesting? And do we think that there's any significance behind the fact that he gets a snowdrop from Una and he gives it to Daisy, which is also a flower? It is curious that Daisy Hempstock is named Daisy because Mm -hmm. it is a flower name. I also found it curious that he gives it to his future wife, you know, to only then later pass it it on and everything. So it's very, very curious. To me, the most relevant difference here is he is told to come back. Exactly. And he makes that choice. The question is how much choice is it because he very obviously is befuddled, bewitched, call it whatever you want. Because like his friends go and bring him back to wall and then he comes back. Yeah. Tommy brings him back but he doesn't really care enough about stay with him. He cares more about the market and... I don't blame him but it's like he left fairy and thus by definition all enchantments must have worn off. Yes. Because... So was he enchanted then? He was enchanted until he left. So... But Uno had no way of knowing that he would be like brought over. So I am with you that this is an actual free will thing. That Mm -hmm. he had free choice and free will. But only because his friends actually brought him back. Okay. Otherwise this would have been more icky to me. I didn't because think movie, of it that it way, but to me. it is a little icky because it, it feels like she is seducing a child yeah. a little bit. And here, A, everyone feels a bit more grown up due to the setup of everything because mm-hmm. here, 17 is fucking grown up. Yeah, yes, in Victorian age. And also here, because he leaves Fairy, he basically gets a normality reality reset. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it feels like more of an actual choice. And I complaint in the movie that it felt so I obviously did not have an issue with the actual sex scene that we get in the book I just did not see it coming (laughs) literally wow he tries to pull out he really does and and it is said so word by word in the book yes and she's like nah it's okay it's like what (laughs) it's fine I'm using protection uh huh like I'm not a fan of this type of conception because like no baby trapping is not the way also that was not part of the agreement. Please yeah, do but it up front. Also, I don't think that she, I don't think she was trying to baby trap him. I think she was trying to baby free herself. Yeah, but by that she automatically also baby trapped him with a child. So she wasn't trying to keep him for herself. No, but she was looking for a baby daddy. So yeah, but know. she was yeah. Like when you say baby trap, I would imagine. I know it's like usually to keep the person with you, but yeah. I know I, I don't have a better word than baby trap. We I also suppose. of course meet Cell in all of this. Yeah. Yes, very briefly. And she is confronted by Duncan's friends, but she's only muttering about losing a prized possession. Is it Duncan or Dunstan? Dunstan, sorry. Or did I write it down wrong again? I don't know. You just said they were confront. She was confronted by Duncan's friends, so I just want to make sure. <sighs> Let me double check. Where's his fucking name? In chapter one, everywhere. Dunstan. It's Dunstan. I and I wrote down Dunstan. I just said Duncan because I'm an idiot. <laughs> So she gets confronted by Dunstan's friend. Dunstan's friends. There's too many S's in it. That's why I said Duncan, you know? So by Dunstan friend... By Dunstan's... See? But I said Dunstan, at least. By being confronted by Dunstan's friend, you're talking about Tommy, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have any other friends, right? (laughs) Yeah, not really, no. I also love that we get a background on Tommy and Bridget. Yes, they're great. I love that this puts Victoria on a very more... I like Victoria in the book much more. I love Victoria. And we're going to talk about Victoria, especially in the end. But But I love book Victoria. They did her dirty in the movie. Oh, fuck yeah. I feel like it's such a shame. And it makes her behavior in the book make so much more sense. If you know where she came from. 
And we yeah. know that Dunstan and Tommy were best friends. And we know that Bridget and Daisy are best friends. So it makes sense for Tristan and Victoria be so this close and grow up together because yeah. of all the circumstances. His sister is fucking besties with Victoria. Exactly, because they are both born the same time. And yeah. this is what happens when you are that age and you grow up in a place where there's nobody else. And also your moms are besties. You're just literally the same age. So of course you're going to be besties. You have no yeah. other choice. Yeah. No, but so now Victoria, of course, means that we have to go into chapter two. Oh, already? Oh, I don't. Because like Dunstan ends up marrying Daisy and then he has another child. That's all I have. We've been skipping around a lot through, oh, uh, through my notes. <laughs> so I'm just going to want to make, I want to make sure that we've covered everything that I wanted because. Yes, yes. If we're going to do it, we're going to do this properly. And I love the book. Oh, yes. So I really enjoyed the, the description of the market in the book. Yes. Very much corresponds with what we see in the movie, which is also quite rare because the, the feeling that you get when you read something is very rarely transferable to screen. And I and don't know if this is... It is surprising they managed to do it yeah. with the market because they did not manage to do it with wall. No, not really. But yeah. it's... It's weird because I'm not sure how much of that is that I saw the movie first and then read the book or if it's just that well written and that well adapted. Don't know. I think like for the market, they made a fucking miracle happen, but not for Wall. We have mentioned the fact that we have the market itself inviting people from across the wall, cross into the ferry. That just makes everything make so much more sense. And I just really like that change. Sometimes even people cross when there's no market and the guards still let them through. If they have that look in their eyes. Oh, yeah. That is mentioned there, even though they try to... uh, They try to dissuade people. Yeah. If they, they try to deny certain, it, kind of. They, if they have, like, basically if they want it enough, they will get yeah. moved. And uh, they will yeah. get let through. Yeah. And I have a weird question. Yes, please. How did Una get the baby to the wall? Did she have Sal, like, did she have Sal allow her to bring it to the wall by herself? I have a very simple answer to that. Those things have rules. And okay. the entrapment for Una applies only to her. So I'm pretty sure that Sal had no right to keep or harm the baby. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense because specifically because the rules are mentioned quite heavily later on. Mm-hmm. Which is why I said it this way. <laughs> because I felt like Sal was just like, I, I just don't want this baby here because I would have to make sure that it's okay and blah, I don't want that. So that was just one, one thing that it was like, hmm, I wonder. Thank you for that answer. Now we can move to chapter two and a bunch of my points that I have written in my chapter one notes, but they are relevant to chapter two. Great. Chapter two is in which Tristan Thorne grows to manhood and makes a rash promise. It doesn't say grows a manhood. It says grows grows to to manhood. manhood. Yeah, I know, but I'm 12, okay? (laughs) Now, first of all, big appreciation for Daisy. Before we get into anything, it feels to me that Tristan has never felt like a lesser child. He has never felt that he is not her own in the time that he was growing up. In fact, it never crossed his mind. And even though people around heard rumors or spread rumors, he grew up as a healthy, happy child. And I praise Daisy for that because she is incredibly selfless to do that. And she must love Dunstan a lot. Also, she didn't really have a choice. Because because by the time Tristan shows up in his basket, she's already highly pregnant. Yes. So I do not applaud her for staying with the family, but I do applaud her for embracing Tristan as her own, despite being like put in front of already made decisions. Yes. So yeah. But like, I don't think she had much of an option than to stay with Dunstan I mean, and the family. She could have just go back to her parents, which suppose would be the one thing that would have been socially acceptable I suppose at the time not really you don't really divorce your husband for stuff like that but she could have been a horrible stepmother yes but she could have also been horrible to him yes yeah so this is what I appreciate and I know the bar is low but this is a classic fairy tale so to not have the horrible stepmother yes is actually a twist because 
when I started reading this, I was like prepared to hate Daisy for being mean to mm-hmm. uh, to Tristan. And you could very easily have created the story where Tristan doesn't feel at properly home. at home, and this is what also motivates yeah. him to leave. So this is not the case, and I love that. Yes, he was picked on by the kids, but especially his fucking sisters. And as much as I appreciate Daisy, I do not appreciate Louisa. Uh, Louise, sorry, not Louisa. I finally wrote down her name. <laughs> She grows eventually. Well, after he's missing for ages and she missed out on having a Christmas. She's a fucking brat. I do not like Louise and I'm very happy she does not exist in the movie. Yeah. Well. (laughs) She's an instigator. Technically, you could argue that uh, Louise is one of the sisters of Victoria that we see in the movie. Yes. So... She might still be there in a way. My favorite thing about chapter two is the sentence where we get all the background of Tristan and then that he is learning about sex by osmosis. Uh, Because yes, this is how it works on a few levels, I have to say. Dirty jokes, bad poems and osmosis is how you learn about sex to a certain degree. And then you start figuring out things more accurately. And in detail, yeah. But I love the learning about sex by osmosis. It just Mm. really... Like, Mr. Gaiman, thank you, sir, for writing this. Also, he's still a creep because he broke his arm while peeping on Victoria. So, Tristan, still a creep, just as before. Uh, yeah. Now, question of his childhood. So, we learned that at the ripe age of eight, the first market <laughs> of his life is happening and he's been sent away. But he gets a kitten. But as a compensation, and I understand why they did that, because... Yeah. You know, rather than having a child mingle. But he gets a kitten. And my big question is, what the fuck? Because there's a lot of description of the cat and the cat being weird and then like running away for some reason during a specific event when Dunstan comes back and whatever. I want to know what happens to the cat. I want to know why she left or why he left, why the cat left anyway. You have never read The Never Ending Story, right? No. Because... I will now quote the never-ending story, but this is a different story and shall be told at another point. And then the author dies and never wrote any of those stories that he was supposed to be telling. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's in the movie as well. (laughs) We shall ask Mr. Gaiman what happened to the cat. Yes, because it feels like there's a setup, like a similar setup to the tiny hairy man, but she never comes back. I want to know. The adventures of a kitten. I want to know what happens to the cat with the purple eyes. I think it was purple eyes. Something, something like that. And I think she was like a purplish fur rather than a purple like, eyes. She just because looked different. Yeah. 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 Because if it was purple eyes, I would be like, is that Una? 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 Mm. But it wasn't. Anyway, now I'm doing my math in my notes. That is good. If you want to know about the math, listen to the bonus. Because we did over half an hour of math. So, no. For me, obviously, we have to talk about Victoria does not look like Yvaine in the book. Not at all. She has curling hair. She has chestnut colored hair. Yvain in the book looks like in the movie. Very much so. So it must have been a deliberate choice to have Victoria and Yvain look the same in the movie. Yeah, alike. They look, I mean, come on. They could be fucking twins. No, they couldn't be twins. They could be sisters, but they couldn't be twins. Mm. So this is an aspect that I actually liked. And this is connected to the fact that I like Victoria much better in the book then I like her in the movie because she is not a twat in the book. She is just a teenager. In general, like, she's much less useless. She actually, like, wants to have the job in the pub. Like, she's fighting with her parents about it and everything. And also later on when we have the conversation about, like, marrying older gentlemen, mm-hmm. they all have this conversation with purpose and understanding and not being giggly, annoying little girls, you yeah. know? It just shows a great maturity while being completely immature. There is a lot about her that is more than just a flat character with like no brains. She has a lot more dimensions here. Yes. And she also is much less mean to Tristan. She is 
playing on with his game because they have played this game since they were younger. They have a history. But she is not purposefully using him. Like She is not leading him on. In the movie, we get her walking into the store. Abusing his kindness. Exactly. And just, just using him. And therefore, because this is not the case in the book, he feels much less motivated by desperation and more motivated by love. Yeah. Or what he thinks love is at that point, anyway. At that point, he truly believes that he is deeply, fully, honestly in love with her. Yeah. And so I don't blame his actions as much. He's also so much less of a dork. Yeah. In the movie, he is much more dorky and blindly in love, you know? I mean, he is pretty blindly in love in the book as well, but... It, not I think bad. obviously they had to go into more extremes in the movie because they needed to drive the yes. home, the makeover and everything in a shorter period of time. And it absolutely makes sense to me, but I just prefer it the way they do it. It feels just less desperate and it feels more natural as their relationship has progressed towards that. And then knowing in a hindsight why Victoria came in there in the first place and she's not agreeable to his advances at that point. Also, she's much less materialistic and greedy. Yeah. Because she does not say, bring me the star because it's worth something or rare or anything. Like, this is more, uh, okay, you bring me the star, so fuck off and, like, stop it, dude. Like, it's... Uh, I was, I'm very much with her. I just want to point out, because we moved onwards from the conversation about the older gentleman. Oh, yeah. This is one of the few bits that did not age great for me. Uh, uh, yeah. But we, we have this whole thing of discussing the age differences and stuff like that. And I feel like if you put it in the context of Victorian era... Still, it... But that's just, this is one of the very few things that did not age well for me. Yeah, it was a bit icky when I read that. But yeah, maybe that's why I didn't make any notes on it. So we get the whole bring me the star. And Tristan, of course, is like, yeah, he's running home. And remember how much I complained in the movie that it's stupid, that he's so unprepared and he just leaves. It does not even bring like a... Like a snack or something. In the book, of course, I am much happier because he actually packs a bag. He has a conversation about leaving. He says goodbye before he flies away. And of course, we have the whole, he goes to the wall. Dunstan walks with him, does not tell him about his mother. And this is like one of the biggest differences in the movie. Right before Tristran steps foot into fairy, he learns of his heritage. Yeah, well, not completely, but yes. But mostly. But here he knows nothing. He does not know that he is part fairy he is yeah he doesn't he doesn't understand anything like for all he knows he is a human child of human yes. parents he's totally wall. normal but he's not and so dunstan walks with him he gives him the snowdrop at the very very last second and he convinces the guards with the well you know the stories about how tristan blah, 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 and then they let him pass given where he's from ha 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 and not even that like causes tristan to bat an eye because he kind of spaces out during the conversation which is like honey really <laughs> you are a teenager <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just too occupied by the idea of Victoria. Yeah, but I really enjoy the... He goes prepared but blindly. And in the movie, he knows so much, but he goes completely unprepared, which does not do it for me. Yeah, yeah. He knows that he is looking for his mother because he doesn't have a mother Yeah. <laughs> in the movie. While yeah. in the book, there's no reason for Dunstan to actually tell him that Daisy is not his mother unless... He wants to help him on his quest. No, knowing that you're part fairy when you go into fairy might be helpful. Because now when we move on later and then we learn that Tristan has like certain gifts or competencies or something. It makes sense. But Tristan doesn't know why he would have this because he doesn't know he's part fairy. Yeah. So Dunstan did not do him a service by not... Nope sharing but hey at least Tristan prepared at least he has something to eat and at least Dunstan has walked him down and you know it feels like he's giving him his blessing for the travels because he yeah. is sending him off with a snowdrop and everything and it just is giving a much more 
like father's approval that you need to do something yes. and I don't need to know what it is you need to figure it out for yourself both Dunstans are very supportive of yes. their son so Which that is, is nice that's a that's a good vibe yeah mm-hmm. it it feels like a seal of approval to give to having him gift the snowdrop to his son it's the drop of approval ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> chapter two we are entering the ferry at the very last page of chapter two tristan is walking across the field nobody has said the phrase but it's a field which is very sad and disappointing to me because that is the one proper fun line that ben barnes has said in the movie and it is written by his hand in my book Because it's a field. Love, Ben Barnes. It is not indeed in the book, which is really funny because this is apparently what he always writes in, uh, if anybody asks him to sign Stardust, Stardust, he always writes this specific phrase. And uh, some things that he says may be fine in the book, but uh, this specific one, absolutely not, because it does not fit into the story. Maybe you should find a better line for him to write and let him know the next time you meet him. (sighs) Which is going to be yeah, so watch the movie, re-check the parts with Dunstan in the book. I mean, I could, but I also have other plans for him uh, that are big. But <laughs> okay. I we're just going to let that stand there. So as Tristan is moving across the field towards the deeper and deeper parts of fairy, the land... We get hints of different weather. We get different hints to a different time of year. We start getting hints of a different environment. And because he's not traveling by candlelight, we get to experience that with him. I really like this concept of, I mean, this is like a classic literature concept where we learn about the environment through the eyes of the main protagonist. We get a chance of doing that right now because... This is the first time Tristan is actually beyond the wall and seeing what's going on there. While in the movie, we have seen it through Dunstan's eyes. Yeah, he is the one who gives us our first experience. And Tristan is just thrown into fairy in the movie. Here, That's what he does. He gives, Dunstan gives and gets his first experience. Wow. Yes. Yes. Uh, Indeed. But a With absolutely no in-between break, we move over to chapter three, in which we encounter several other persons, many of them still alive, with an interest in the fate of the fallen star. Da-da-da! And the thick plottons. The thick plottons. I have to say, I really enjoy the ghost brothers in the book, but I did miss the comedic quality of them Mm. that they have in the movie quite a bit there is a lot of physical comedy in that which obviously it it just translates so much better on screen and the actors are incredible and holy shit mark strong has made septimus so much better character i mean i love septimus in the book he is really really fun but he does not different like yeah Septimus in the book now looks like Mark Strong it is forever Mark Strong but he doesn't get as much opportunity to shine for example when we first get into the brotherhood and everything only in the movie only three of them are dead and we get to watch Secundus yeah we get to watch Secundus die here while in the book, he's already dead. Like, come on, give me Septimus, Septimus killing him. But at least he was killed by being pushed by Septimus in the book as well. We just don't see it happen in that way. We do still have the same, exactly same scene uh, otherwise, except for yeah. the one fact where the father, where the Lord of Stormhold is actually getting up to do the prophecy thing unlike in the movie where he's just like lying down as a dying Lazarus whatever yes it actually rises so to me the description of Stormhold in the book is extremely vivid Mm -hmm. and this just like the market I feel was translated incredibly well yes so very very happy I don't remember that we learned that the king is the 81st lord because in the book it's explicitly stated that he is the 81st and the next one is going to be the 82nd and it is repeatedly stated yeah. that they're and trying to think... become the 8 second the end. Yeah, and I don't think the movie ever mentioned it. Of course, Evain here is as well the evening star. Mm-hmm. Because it is explicitly like, oh, it's the only star in the sky when the dusk is happening. So yeah, it's very much Venus. So yay. 
We had this conversation. Yes. And I found it very relevant that Primus and Septimus, their age difference is made extremely clear in the book. How much older Primus is than Septimus. It is fairly clear in the movie as well, just by the choice of actors and uh, makeup and uh, did not beard-like and stuff. feel that far apart to me. So Primus is described as in his late 40s, right? And yeah. Septimus is, I think, like mid-20s or something? Chapter 3. Oh, you have the digital version. He summoned his children. 81st Lord of Stromhold. Second is Quintus, Quartus, and Sextus are dead. Uh, One of these safe Septimus who had killed both Quintus and Sextus, poisoning the former with a dish of spiced eels and rejecting artifice for efficiency and gravity, simply pushed Sextus off a prison. Oh, look at that. He is pushing Sextus off a... a Oh, and not Secundus. And not Secundus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a change that I did not notice when I was no, me neither. Notes. I even wrote down Secundus' death already happened, though it was also by being pushed by Septimus. My notes are wrong. Yep, he doesn't even. Okay, say. I don't see the age. Well, let's let's not go on another research tangent here. The biggest difference is a the Lord needs to be placed in the crypt for some reason, mm-hmm. and b the king also turns into a ghost. Yeah, for I I don't think he just sticks for that around, moment. but for yeah, that he moment, stick around. yeah, because he's going to be taken into the crypt, right, and he's going to be put to rest while the rest of them yes, are not put point. to rest. Good point. Very good point. Well, that is the first part of chapter three. But now we go to the witches. And the witches are very, very, very different. Very different. First of all, Mm. we don't get their names, do we? We only get a name later for the main witch, which is Moronek, I think. But that's only what they call her, not her true name, because her true name... Moronek is the name she gives Cell. Yes. And it's a, like it's an inside joke to her when she gives it like she's amused when she names herself that yes because it's true because it's something about deep sea deep ocean and apparently herald- we're going to talk about that but apparently it's a name that Neil made up because I could not find anything about this anywhere but the Stardust Wiki where it was like this is the name Neil made Mm. So, yeah. But yeah. No, but they are called the Lilim. And everyone who listens to our Lucifer podcast... What's that? ...knows who the Lilim are, so I'm not going to go into any tangent here. <laughs> Wait, Lucifer podcast? Whomever did that? I actually told someone this weekend about uh, having done a Lucifer podcast, and she looked oh. up on her podcast app and oh. claims she will start listening to it. So, yay! Mm. Bernie, if you ever make it this far... Hi, this is July 2023. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I feel old. Yeah. This podcast is also old. Mm-hmm. We are old. Yeah, so mm-hmm. the Lilim, the witch queen. Mm-hmm. But there is no plural S when they are described as the witch queen, which I find curious because queen is singular. So they are three and they are one. It does feel like it because they talk about each other as sisters but one success of one brings on a success of all three exactly so they are much more like Hecate and like the fates in a sense where three are one and one is three and also of course like the whole stolen holy trinity bullshit so yeah it's curious and also did you catch the parallel thingy with the hovel they live in and the mirror and the castle and everything yeah because in a movie they only live in the castle but it looks like a hovel. It, it looks like a rundown castle. But it's still a castle. It's still ginormous. Yes, but if I remember that correctly, the way we first see them, it looks like they're in this little hut, or you know, it doesn't doesn't feel it doesn't give the idea of big space around them until one of them becomes young again and lights all the lights. Her name, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, yes. Is... Fuck sake. No, that's not her name. I knew it earlier today. I was like, oh, yeah. And she is. And I'm like, no, I'm like, uh. Uh, Lamia, Mormo, and Ampusa. Of course. I did a whole fucking devil's in the details about this. Yep. You remember the Lilim and you remember the Hecate. 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 There's great many songs about Hecate. No, so I agree with you like in the movie only once Lamia starts being young again the entire set seems to basically like open up mm-hmm. but here it, it is in parallel. literal yeah it is a literal hut in the woods yeah so it's very very 
curious. But yeah, I also noted down that we don't get any names for the witches, which made it very, very annoying at some point to like, how do you talk about her? So I was very happy that at some point she gets the name Moronek. Mm. And then but I just... But they never use it again. <laughs> no, I, I keep using it to describe her. Oh yeah, the witch queen. I always call her Moronek. So. We also get little glimpses of how the magic works because it feels like there are different yes. types of magic that she There's can so use. There's so many side stories. Use. Again, something that we can ask Neil Gaiman to expand on and write a whole entire book about how magic works in the fairy, in Stardust. Or he could just tell us what happens to the enchanted mouse prince and owl woman. Yeah, also we get all of these things where like basically throughout the book you get the feeling that not there is not a single animal that is, is actually an, animal. an actual animal yeah yeah they exactly. all are sentient beings that have been turned into animals because something happened welcome to fairy i mean it kind of makes sense if you've ever heard of the call the book you understand the twisted minds of fairies on a new level i mean isn't there also like a scene where like he hunts and then he gets like chastised oh yes so yeah, There's like literally all the animals are not our animals, but they are all magic. So basically everyone in fairy needs to be a vegetarian. Basically, unless you're cruel and you enjoy this, like I would say the witch queen slash Lamia slash Mea Moronic. Uh, that's what I said, yeah. Moronic. More one egg. Yeah, moronic. More one egg. See? Like a, like it's a more but one egg. Exactly. More one egg. Yeah, more than one egg. More one egg. Wait, there is, is there then then? Is there more then, than then. one egg? Is there more than one egg or is it more one egg? <laughs> we need to move on. I hate us. So... Uh, unless you're the witch queen or Lamia or whatever you want to call her Moronic 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 okay <laughs> now we yes now everyone in fairy is vegetarian unless you're evil exactly we end chapter three we also have the whole thing that I want to mention and this is connected to the magic that it feels like their young selves or their spirits that are untouchable by time, essentially. They live inside the mirror and it's not like she turns into herself and she is still in the mirror. No, the soul leaves the mirror and gets inside the old body and it becomes young again, which now means that she is outside of the protection in the yep. mirror and i wonder if she goes back inside of it by the end of it when she loses all of her, all of her youth and she's the oldest she's ever been no she if won't the young because self... her sisters are uh cruel but torturous or something i forgot Tormentous. Like she, she, has an, she, has, she has an amazing line she does say that yeah they're cruel but harsh but cruel Harsh but cruel, yes. So I don't think that she's going to go back into the mirror unless the other two need her to exist to have the power of free. Well, technically, she is not going to be killed until the baby is going to be in the cradle, but the, that cradle has to like... Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah, then, so, then, then she has to go back into the mirror, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because yeah. she was existing outside of the mirror before she got the youth back. Yeah. But she was... But her um, essence. Yeah, her yeah. essence, her youth and everything was in the mirror to be kept safe I would assume that is the idea that I've got from that yeah, and that makes we sense. get the scene which is in the movie and I love that this is directly taken from the book it's where Lamia or Witch Queen yes. gets her old body back and she literally strips naked and admires her everything yes and the sisters also admires her but they're really very reluctant about that also isn't she like super judgy about the place they live in oh fuck yeah <laughs> she yeah, is which is so also bad. like directly taken from book to movie it's so good and it's so perfectly portrayed and I just felt like we need to embrace and lift this up because it's just so great and Michelle Pfeiffer is mwah, mwah, mwah. but also that is what the movie did they took everything about the witch queen and made it more yes because there was so much that could be used for it so I'm very happy that the witch queen does get a bigger role in the movie she deserves it absolutely after the witches we get the Enchanted Mouse Prince and Owl Woman insert. And then we meet Yvain. And biggest difference in this chapter, Yvain breaks her leg proper when she lands. It is not Tristran's fault. Yep. I mean, technically it's his blood's fault, but we don't know that yet. Also, that does not make it his fault. He is not responsible True. for his grandfather's action. True. Yes, it is 
a big difference and also this whole uh, vibe that we get from uh, the Evain falling. Yeah. We get much more of the uh, there was a living forest and now there is not. And also, like, I keep calling Evain Evain even though we learn her name much later in the book. Much later. But from the moment we meet her, Evain feels less naive than she ever is in the movie. Mm-hmm. And she is heartbroken from the beginning because she knows she's never going home. Yeah, nobody has ever come back. Like, stars only fall. They don't go back. Which we're gonna talk about when we talk about the ending, but there is no happily ever after for you, Nope. Which I forgot. Yes. I didn't know that and it crushed me because not only, and we're going to get back into that, but that's the whole thing with the children and her. Yeah, she has no children. A lot of loneliness. She has no family. Nothing. Yep. And she can never go back to her family. And it's just... She can yeah. never go back. And another random supernatural reference. So you are welcome. All right. Anything else from you for chapter three? Nope. That is me. Let's stop here for the time being. Looking at the time, it's a good, good one. Also looking at the point in the book where we are right now. We decided it's a good one. We have met all of our characters that are important. We have met Yvaine and saw her fall and what shall be coming next you will find out in the next episode as always it's gonna be more than one it's gonna be more than two who knows how many it's gonna be in the end 15 episodes on the book of Stardust you're welcome thank you so much for listening and bye bye